This is an ABC podcast. So, Norman, last week we revealed to our listeners that we're not in an exclusive relationship with the novel coronavirus anymore. We've been uh, experimenting with other viruses. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And they've given us some ideas for new names for the podcast in light of this. One person says monkey cast. Not bad. I like monkey cast. That one, another one says pandemonium, which we could also use it as an opportunity to talk about pandas as well, which I like. Yeah. And one is Epidemicast. Oh, I like it. There's also Pandemicast, which does seem like the most obvious one. But I don't know, Norman, there's just something that I'm always going to love about Coronacast. But I've got one more for you. Neuroticast. <laughs> that's definitely, I feel like that's very fitting for at least your side of our conversation. Well, that's right. It's me that's neurotic, not anybody else. Well, let's get on with it. Yep. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. I'm physician and journalist Dr. Norman Swan. It's Wednesday, the 1st of June, 2022, and this is Coronacast. And we've heard a lot about the different subvariants of Omicron, that uh, new variant that burst onto the scene late last year, and now it's it sort of seems to be branching out. But we've talked before about fitness of viruses, Norman, and the fact that there will be one probably that can edge out the others because it'll have some advantages that the others don't have. And I like to think of it as being like the one true Omicron. And there's enough evidence now to kind of pit the subvariants against each other as someone with much more brain cells than we have put together has done. What do they say about which subvariant looks like it's going to be the winner? Well, it may be two true Omicron. So this comes from Trevor Bedford, who runs a viral evolutionary lab in Seattle and has been writing very coherently and well about the viral evolution since the beginning of the pandemic. You know, if he brings all the evidence together and they've been tracking viral genomes now since the beginning of the pandemic. And what he's saying is that essentially when you look at BA4 and BA5, so these are the latest cousins of Omicron, the first Omicron, which was BA1. So they're all under the Omicron umbrella. They are a bit more contagious. So they are starting to edge out the other, at a low level, but they are starting to edge out the other Omicron subvariants, which is particularly two and a subvariant of two. It gets very complicated. What's 2.1, 2.1? And there's a hint now that the reason that, or at least one of the reasons why BA4 and BA5 are edging out the BA2 subvariant is that they are more immune evasive, so that there's just less of an antibody response in the body to these BA4 and BA5 subvariants, and that could be a reason why these are starting to edge out the BA2 in particular. So it's early days, but it looks as if they will slowly take over, would be the prediction. So if they're more immune evasive, is it a simple, no, I know it's not simple, but would a simple way of getting around that would just be to make the vaccines specific to those variants? Well, it might be. But before we get to that, the implication of being more immune evasive is that you could actually get reinfection with the BA4 and BA5 if you've had a previous Omicron. And there's a lot of talk about reinfection. So there's not a lot of strong evidence for reinfection with Omicron. In fact, there was some evidence that you didn't get reinfection. But Trevor Bedford suggesting that you might start to see this with BA4 and BA5. The question of vaccines is a really important one. It just shows you how difficult it is. That it, so what do you make a vaccine to? Can you do a sort of pan-Omicron vaccine that covers all variants in the Omicron family? Maybe that's quite hard to do if you've got subvariants like 4 and 5 emerging, which are vaccine-resistant. So if you'd made a vaccine to BA2, it wouldn't work very well or less well. It would work less well against BA4 and BA5. So it just really emphasises we've got to get these second-generation vaccines out there 
and there are lots around and hopefully they're more effective across potential variants as well. So these are second generation vaccines are ones that are trying to provide a more broad immune response. They're not necessarily targeting just the spikiest spike of the the spike protein, but they're looking at other parts of the virus that might not change as readily as the the end of the spike protein. And one place that that might be is what's called the receptor binding domain, which uh, the Doherty Institute, their vaccine is targeting that. And they reckon that there's less variation in a very, very pointy end, if you like, of the spike where it docks with the body. That They're betting that that's probably less variable than some other parts of the spike. So are you saying that instead of just updating the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine, that we should be looking to completely new vaccine technologies? Yeah, it just depends on whether they exist and whether they come out. I mean, an interesting paper just from China on a COVID-19 nasal vaccine. So you spray it up your nose rather than inject it using influenza as the carrier for that vaccine. And it wasn't very effective, unfortunately. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff out there trying to make a more effective or easier to administer vaccine, but we, we haven't cracked it yet, or they haven't cracked it yet. It's very exciting from a scientific point of view, but what kind of timeframes would we be talking about here? I think that the uh, Melbourne vaccines are going into trial, or at least early trials, uh, is what I understand. And I'm sure that's happening overseas as well. So we've not got the shining light on these vaccines that we had because of desperation with Pfizer and Moderna and Astra. But we should start to see something emerge, I would hope, by the end of this year in terms of new vaccines, perhaps for 2023. So let's take some questions. Our audience members have been sending them in as usual at abc.net.au slash coronacast. And Brett says, with the size of the Omicron outbreak in New Zealand... Oh, do we take questions from New Zealanders? Oh, okay. We'll make an exception for Brett. Uh, He says, it's almost inconceivable that I haven't personally been exposed to the SARS-CoV-2 virus on multiple occasions. Brett is triple vaxxed with Pfizer, wears a mask when appropriate, hasn't had COVID or tested positive. So he's assuming the vaccine's done its job and his immune system has fought off the virus. So he's wondering, does that mean his immune system is now even better prepared for any future exposures and he's even less likely to get COVID? Well, I wish that were true. The reality is that, uh, Brett, your behaviour at the moment is good because you're fully vaxxed and you're wearing a mask when appropriate. So you are trying to protect yourself against any viruses that are around, including COVID-19. So that's a good thing. And that behaviour in itself will protect you against new COVID-19 versions that might arise. Um, But it doesn't guarantee that, unfortunately, moving forward. There's another question that we frequently get, which I thought was where you were going to go with this, Brett, which is, you know, everybody around me has had, the typical question is, everybody around me has had COVID-19 and I've not had it. You know, am I special and am I, you know, somehow resistant to this? Uh, In fact, I had just that conversation with Patricia Carvelis last Monday outside the studio and she was going on about how... She never gets it. And then the, the next day she was off work with COVID-19. So she <laughs> uh, she just jinxed it. But the, the, there's a fair bit of research going on, to, going on into this. And there's no doubt that if you take any virus, there's probably somebody somewhere or people somewhere with a genetic variation in their bodies which confers some resistance to, that, to the virus. It could be at any point. It could be resistance to the infection process. It could be resistance to the um, to the spread of the virus in your body, uh, and so on. So there's there's lots of different things that are going on. It's almost certain that there are people who are truly resistant to COVID nineteen because it's true of other viruses, 
And if they are, the reason will be almost certainly genetic. Assuming their behavior is the same as anybody else's. Brett's behavior is very COVID protective, and that's probably why he's protected himself so far. Well, Brett, I hope you continue to dodge COVID. Uh, And we've got a question from another listener who's saying, can you please give us an update about the mysterious hepatitis cases cropping up in children? I'm scared for my kiddies. Well, worldwide, the WHO has recently reported on the latest number of cases. It's about 650 cases in about 33 different countries. It's still showing quite a lot of severity, some kids needing acute liver transplantation. They haven't got anywhere near to the cause yet. So there was a theory about adenovirus, which is still a possibility. Maybe adenovirus on top of COVID-19, that's a possibility, but it's not panning out. So they're, they're really still not sure what's causing this virus. But if you've got 650 cases in a world population of many billions, it's not hugely common. Um, although it will be underdiagnosed. Almost certainly there'll be kids with a milder form of hepatitis who are being missed. But it's not running rampant at this stage. So whilst you might be worried about your own children, it's not something to keep you up at night about, at least at this stage. In a country like Australia, once it's identified, is it is it able to be treated well in hospital? Well, acute hepatitis is very difficult to treat. And you rely on supporting the child or the adult with acute hepatitis. And the treatment is around mostly, because if you don't know what you're treating, you can't give drugs, is mostly around supporting the person, make sure they're well hydrated and they're, if they need to be in intensive care. But if in the end the liver starts to fail, you really have got very few options and liver transplantation is, is, is about it. You certainly want to avoid drugs like paracetamol, which can damage the liver, but there's no evidence that there's a particularly higher instance of these kids taking paracetamol than others. Mm, it is really worrying. Um, we can comfort ourselves with the fact that it's rare, although that's not much comfort to the people who it does affect. Anyway, that's all we've got time for on Coronacast today. You can keep sending questions through or comments, whatever. We like, we love to read them all at abc.net.au slash coronacast. And we'll see you next week. See you then. See you then.